0: The following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Well, as uh, Sean and Patrick mentioned, Chris and Nigel are away in Greece. They have been in Thessaloniki, uh, Corinth, Berea, Uh, Philippi, a whole bunch of different places, and uh, I'm entirely jealous, but happy for them and happy to be with you. Uh, We are going to be back in James next week. This week, we are taking a one-week break to dive into Luke 18, a parable there. If you are newer to Faith Bible Church, allow me to introduce myself. My name is John Plesnick. I am uh, one of the pastors and elders here. I'm involved with uh, community groups, training center, the seminary. We have building missions, uh, shepherding a lot of leaders, a whole lot of that stuff. And Chris and I have been long friends for a long time, 20-plus uh, years now, and I have learned a ton from him. One of the things that I've learned over those years is to be looking ahead instead of right in front of me. And he does that better than anyone I know. I uh, am growing a bunch in that, and being involved in the building project, being involved in community groups, I am thinking a lot about the future right now. Every Sunday when I walk onto this church campus, I am genuinely amazed at what we have. Uh, that we show up, most of us show up, and there is screens and equipment and sound. If you're here for first service, they're doing a live stream. You drop your kids off, and they, they're still there when you come back later. Like There's children's workers who do a phenomenal job, and uh, it just all goes like clockwork. And it's incredible. I'm so thankful. And I don't think much about it. I just enjoy it. Where I'm thinking about is much more what's coming than where we are. Something about what is life in the tent going to be like. Uh, it is going to be radically different than here in many ways. Right? For one, you won't be on a bleacher. It's going to be amazing. I I honestly don't know that it will be better because we haven't bought the chairs, but we're all living in the delusion that it's going to be better and more comfortable than this, uh, which doesn't seem too hard of a standard to meet. So there's all kinds of things like what will it be like as we go there and then we're watching the building get built up around us Uh, and we'll show up with a parking lot and a tent, hopefully a couple modulars, and uh, then we're going to see the building built next to us while we meet, which is going to be crazy. And so... You know, a year or so from now, after we're in the tent, you know, six months or whatever, then we move into a worship center, which will be a whole new life. And then there's some years after that. Because what it's going to be like as we move into the worship center is going to be amazing. And I think we'll even, you know, see old friends come back to celebrate with us. If you've been on this wagon train for a while, it is just going to be so different. But there's going to come a time when... I say, how many of you were with us at Murrieta Valley High School? And right now, you'd all raise your hands. Yeah! But there's going to come a time when, like, you're the minority. Isn't that going to be weird? Because right now, it feels like this common shared experience. And you can think back. Some of you were at Bella Vista. And, like, you can remember different days and epochs in the life of the church And there's still change coming. You know, there'll be the the tent section, there'll be the building, and and beyond. And I'm thinking about all of that time, and and what's going to come, and where people will come from, and what their assumptions and presuppositions and history will be as they come in. And they're going to come in from all kinds of different places. We're going to get people from Elsinore. It's different. We'll get them from maybe Wildemar, since we're there. Of course, Miriam Temecula, we'll have more from Menifee who come down and cut across. Chris may even be surprised by a few from Hemet. Like, we're, we're going to get people from everywhere. We know that. They'll see the church as they drive by on the freeway. Maybe they'll, some of them will come via counseling ministry. <clears throat> some will become, some will come because of their students who came to youth group. Uh, some will find us online. Most of them will be just like you. Where? They heard about the church from friends, from family, who were faithful, who loved Christ, who were here, and just loved on them and cared for them, and maybe even won them to Christ. Uh, I am not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I have no idea really what's going to come, but I'm pretty confident that the Lord's going to bring more people to our church in the days ahead, a lot more people. And that is exciting, and it's terrifying. Is, is how I feel. Like It is amazing to think about what's going to happen. And it's a bit scary. Because if you're in a CG, chances are you feel, feel kind of full. You feel like, I don't know how we'd get a whole lot more people in here. And if you are serving in children's ministry, you're thinking, Lord, help us if more kids show up. Because they're already enough. And if you're in a men's study or a women's study... You recognize, like, there's not a lot more room around us for more people to come. It is crazy. Our heart as elders is always to make room for more people to squeeze a few more in, but we recognize there's there's going to be some limits. There, there's there's going to be some challenges ahead of us. It's getting harder and harder to do that, which, which means practically. We already need more and more of you to step up. And you're already hearing that. I'm not saying anything new. You heard Pat and Sean say today, if you're not a member, become one. We, want, we need you to be one heart, one mind with us. If you're making FBC your home, it is time to get you fully on board. Early, if you were here early in the life of the church, you might think back and remember some of the crazy people who led and served. And that's fine. We take risks all the time. We're going to take even more risks as we move forward. Learning and letting people learn and grow in roles as they serve. That's a part of being a church family. Uh, Using people who are very much in process. Calling people who don't feel ready to step up anyway and to serve. If you've been a part of FBC for a while, you know this is not a place you can just sit. It is a place you have to serve. You have to plug in. To be truly a part of the church, you need to use your spiritual gifts to serve other people. If you're used to just being at church and sitting, which this building is designed for, you're going to feel more and more uncomfortable. God didn't design the church to simply be attended. He didn't create it to be this performance piece that you get to enjoy. The church is a community where you serve God by serving others. That's what he's called us to be, a family where you're knit together with the rest of the church family. God designed believers to grow by serving one another, by using their gifts to encourage one another. That's the call of God on your life as a Christian to serve others, mutual ministry to others. Now, you you might not feel ready for this. That's totally okay. You may be scared for people to know you. Totally get it you you may feel like you have nothing to offer and none of us really do but you got to step up anyway you you got to move ahead and no matter the thoughts running through your head here is the truth you have to cling to god desires dependence god desires your dependence that is the message of our passage today. That's the message that we want to embrace as a church. It's the thing we need to remember in the days ahead. God desires and delights in dependence. Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 18 if you're not already there. That's where I said we're going to be together today. We're going to look at this short passage that is almost guaranteed a passage all of us all of you have read at some point in your life, it's the second of two parables on prayer. It is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, or if you grew up KJV, the publican, right? So tax collector and the Pharisee, that's the passage. It's chapter Luke, sorry, chapter 18 in Luke, verses 9 to 14. And Luke, at the very start of this parable, he gives us he, he gives us the whole interpretive key. He tells us what it's about. There's no guessing. There's no mystery here. He gives us the reason for the story, why Jesus was telling this. If you're in your Bible in Luke 18, look at verse 9. You're going to see it right at the front. And he, Jesus, also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So he, here's the giveaway, right? The, this is the point of the whole thing. He's talking to people who believe that they're righteous, who are trusting that they are goodness, that they are good enough for God, that they are doing the right things. These are good people who live well. They look down on others who don't look like them. They would be the people who would be at the temple every week. They would be at the, the people who dressed nice for temple. They would be at the temple, never late and always on time. These are the people who are faithful in their prayers. These are the people who sacrificed during the week and made sacrifices in order to be faithful to God. We tend to think of Pharisees as bad, right? Like that, that's all our, our mental cultural definition. A Pharisee is a person who is this hypocrite, who says one thing and does another. In Jesus' day... Let's be real. The Pharisees were the best. Like, they they were the people who were the most pure, the most visibly devoted to God, the people who had the best ambitions for the nation as a whole. They were not compromisers. They were the people who sought to take God's word most seriously. But their heart, at least this man's heart, had moved from a humble dependence to really a contemptuous self-trust, contempt for others, trust in himself. And the message of this parable is that God delights in dependence. God delights in our dependence. What Jesus shows us right at the very beginning is that a religious life, though good on the outside, can be quite deceptive. A religious life can be quite deceptive. That's verses 10 to 12. It's like that photo you see of a hotel room where you're headed on vacation, and it looks beautiful, and then... As you show up, you realize it's considerably smaller than the wide angle positioned in the highest corner showed, right? Verse 10, look at the deception of a religious life, how it looks good. Two men went up up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you. I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So Jesus, in this story, he takes the two most opposite people in the culture. He takes the most pious man and the most hated man. The Pharisees were the purest of all the Jews, They took God's word the most seriously. They were the most faithful in their obedience. They wanted Israel to be pure and devoted to God. They devoted their lives to studying God's word. The tax collector, the exact opposite. Seriously. He would have been viewed as a Roman collaborator. He made his money by charging taxes that the Romans desired and then taking a cut additional, putting some overage on there to pay his own salary and give himself a good life. He was the most hated of them. This is like how you would feel about somebody who worked for the IRS, already dislike him, and then he stole from you too, right? Like it's not just he took what the government wanted. He wanted some additional. That's this guy. He got ahead in life at a cost to others. The Pharisee would have been respected, the tax collector would have been hated, and in Jesus' story, these two men go up to the temple to pray. Now they go up to the temple, because the temple's on a hill, so it's just natural, everyone goes up there, and they go up, and from the outside, if you were watching them, they would have looked almost exactly alike, right? Because they both walk up, they both stand a little bit apart. Now, the, the Pharisee's probably a bit more in the middle of the temple, but he's away, so he doesn't make himself unclean. he doesn't defile himself, so he's distant from other people. The tax collector, he's standing alone. Both of them just address their prayers to God in this exact same starting point. Both of them say things that are true. And they both, in their prayers, wrap up and go home. Like visually, pretty stinking similar. If it wasn't for Jesus, we wouldn't really know because they, they look the same. They both would have been praying silently or at least quietly. Uh, the, the one difference is the Pharisee is praying in the common way. He has his head up, his eyes closed, and he's praying. The, the tax collector, head down, beating his breast, praying. That, that's about the difference. We don't know if they came at the regular standard time, which was nine or three. Uh, they could have come sh- for one of those common times of prayer. They could have shown up for private prayer. But what we see is this religious man is the most self-focused man. He is the most he he, he is the most like an Instagram photo, right? He is staged and made to look beautiful. Those are the ones I see, not the ones I take. So. His prayer in verse 11 looks like thankfulness. But when you dig into it, it's anything but. So after a first mention of God, God, I thank you. Sounds beautiful. He mentions himself over and over and over and over, five times. It is entirely towards himself. While everything he says is true, his attention is very much towards himself. Lord, I thank you that I don't act like these other men around me. I don't extort, I am not partial, I don't cheat on my wife, I don't steal from others in order to earn a living. Those literally, like, that's what he's saying there. Lord, I thank you that I am able to fast twice a week, even though you only command me to do it once a year. I make sure to give you some of everything I have. And let's be honest, this guy sounds awesome! Awesome! He is, like, if he was here, you would think... This guy is amazing. He is always here. He's at every church event that happens. He is honest. He doesn't lie. He's a giver. He is committed. He is serving. You would expect to see him elevated because he's doing more than what's required. He would have been praised in his community for his devotion. The dude is apparently, visibly just outstanding is a guy you would see at every meeting the church has, serving, talking. He's taking notes during the sermon. He is on task. Wives would be watching him, Jewish wives, saying, why can't you be more like him? Right? That's the kind of guy he is. The problem, though, is that a religious life can be quite deceptive. A life that's doing all the right things is no guarantee of what's in the heart. We wouldn't know what's in the heart if it wasn't for Jesus, but the, the evidence here, what Jesus shows us is that his heart doesn't align with his actions. Now what Paul says, who is also a Pharisee, he explains what happens to us. Romans chapter 7 verse 11, he says, this is what happened to me. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. He says, I was trying to follow the law, and in my desire to follow the law, sin crept in and it killed me. Sin used God's law to deceive him, to give him false assurance, and to lead him towards death by doing stuff that he thought would earn God's approval. Just like Paul, this Pharisee's bent was to trust in his righteousness, in his rule following as the basis of God's acceptance of him. He saw himself as better than other men. That he was doing all the things God desired, and so he was good. He did way more than what God desired and required. A religious life can be deceptive, really deceptive. You can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons, Because our natural gravity of our hearts is just like this man. To trust in ourselves. We have a natural bent to live like this man. To judge others and believe that we're the best. To think that what we're doing is just fine before God. Those people, not so much. That's the gravity of our heart. That's why you go into Walmart and no matter who you are, you can find someone to make fun of, right? Because we're prone to thinking that we're better than other people. On the patio, you probably gravitate towards people who are like you, who are similar to you, who you enjoy, people you know. During worship, our eyes are prone to wander, our minds are prone to wander as we watch and we judge others while we're singing, and it is crazy that we can be singing a song while thinking about someone's failure to parent, someone's lack of style, someone's lateness to service. Our minds can go other places while we're supposedly engaged, outwardly engaged. Jeremiah 17:9, right? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? It is surprisingly easy to be satisfied with external righteousness, with doing the right things, and to think we're just fine. You may be living in your own strength, where you show up on Sundays, and you think you're doing everything perfect, and you can't believe how people around you don't do the simple things of obedience that you're faithful to do. And you watch people, Sundays, other times in the week, and you think, I would never do that. The issue is not just what you're doing. It's one of the heart. That's why critical verse, 1 Samuel sixteen seven in your notes. The Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Our Lord cares about more than just your actions. He cares about a lot more than... The exact minute you strolled into church. Don't be late. i not giving me your excuse. But just saying, that, that's not the critical part. What does God delight in? It's not your timeliness. It's your dependence. He cares about where you're, whether you're trusting in him, whether you're depending on him through all of life. He is looking for hearts that cling to him in hope, with hope. And that's that's really the truth that we're led to in the second part as we look at the tax collector, that a sinner knows the state of his soul, right? A sinner knows his true state. Look at Luke 18, verse 13, the, the contrast here with the tax collector. Jesus says, the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, Just like the Pharisee, he'd been standing alone praying. (laughs) Unlike the Pharisee, he he knew his worth or lack of because his culture and everyone around him reminded him of it all the time. They, They would remind him how unworth anything he was. He was aware of how much he was hated. He definitely would have sensed his unworthiness to be in the temple, the holy place of God. And yet his prayer starts really similar to the Pharisees calling out to God but then he only mentions himself a little bit here just one time in fact to the point where if you came across this man you might be concerned that he's kind of got low self-esteem here he he doesn't have a very high view of himself because even the way he prays to God typically head up eyes closed he can't do it his head's down he's pounding his chest he, he can't can't stop feeling bad about himself the grammar is actually emphasizing the repetitive nature of that he's feeling the weight of his sin before god and he doesn't know what to do his unworthiness is at the front of his mind he is a sinner the pharisees identifying him that way but the tax collector agrees with him he's not fighting back on this he is 100 percent in i am a sinner he doesn't offer any declaration of his purity He has no list of works to claim. All he says is, I'm a sinner, Lord, be merciful. Now think about this. This guy, guaranteed, did not read his Bible as much as the Pharisee. He was not in the temple as often as the Pharisee. He did not fast as much as the Pharisee. He did not give as much as the Pharisee. He didn't have the friends, the community, the respect that the Pharisee had. He had none of those things. He knew the state of his soul. He knew it. He was hopeless apart from God. And so he pounds his chest over and over. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He is not deceived. He knows the state of his soul, and he is hopeless apart from the saving work of God. His cry is literally a command to God, grant me atonement, pay for my sins, let your anger be removed from me. That's what he's calling out for. And sitting here, on, as I read and as I read and thought about it, my first gravity of my mind is to think, of course he feels that way. He's a tax collector. He's done some bad stuff, some jacked up stuff. And I know how I can feel with the weight of sin and the guilt over something bad that I did. And if you've been a Christian for a while, there is for sure some point in your life when you were so overcome with grief, over a particular and terrible sin in your life because of maybe the harm it caused to others, the guilt you felt over it, maybe even it led you to pray to receive Christ, sometimes again and again, you felt overwhelmed and you cried out to God. He is not, from, from what we see in the passage, he is not coming because of grief over a particular sin. He is coming... Reflecting the state of his soul and his need for mercy from God all the time. It's good to go to God when you're convicted over sin, but he's not coming with some big sin to confess. You know how I know that? Because that's the pattern I see in scripture of saints over and over. They go to God all the time with this same heart cry, one of just dependent pleading for mercy. So Job, when he's just convicted of pride, he cries out, he says, I despise myself, I repent in dust and ashes before you. King David, as he fled from enemies, Psalm 25, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it's great. Isaiah, as he sees incarnate deity, woe is me, for I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, I draw in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Ezra, as he's praying, considers himself before God, he says, My God, I'm ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Peter, when he first saw Jesus' deity, what does he say? He says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Is it, it is ironic that the people who are the most religious have the least to confess? That's not reality. Right? The saints, the, the men and women of the Bible who we know best from Scripture, they had a lot to confess, and and Scripture's full of it. It's full of them admitting their deep dependence on God and His mercy and their hope in Him alone. They drop to their knees in fear before God. Why? Because God delights in dependence. God delights in dependence. When I think about the future before our church, And the kind of people we need in our church, we don't need perfect people. We need dependent people, this kind of person. God wants people like this tax collector. He doesn't want a perfect family. He doesn't want a person whose life is perfectly put together. He doesn't need a perfect marriage. He wants redeemed people. He wants repentant people. He wants forgiven people. The people of the Bible had flaws, deep flaws. The people of church history, the great saints of church history, they had deep flaws. I mean, you go from Abraham, who's like, no, she's not my wife, right? Like, that's a problem. David, like, just over and over, the the saints of history have major issues, and so do we faking it, pretending to be something that we're not, is not a way to glorify God. It's not what He uses. It's not what He wants. None of us are perfect. Not Chris, not Nigel, not me, and it's definitely in that order. God God wants all of us with all of our glorious flaws, and that brings Him glory as we cry out to Him and depend on Him. That cry for mercy is the basis of our salvation. Right, is the starting point of our salvation when we acknowledge that we are sinners and that we have no hope apart from Him and the saving mercy of Jesus Christ. And we live that same way five years later, 10, 15, 25 years later. Your cry before God is no different then than it was on the day of your salvation. Your cry and your hope is still in Jesus Christ alone and nothing else. Right, we are, remain sinners saved solely through the mercy of Jesus Christ. We follow the Bible, not to be saved, but we follow God's word out of gratitude because we want to look like our Savior. Right, that, we 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 sing the song. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. That that is our plea. All the time, we live every day dependent on the mercy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Every sinner knows the true state of their soul. Every day is lived to acknowledge our need for God and His mercy, to fully give ourselves to the one who fully gave Himself for us. God delights in dependence. And when you hit the end of the parable, what you see is honestly almost as shocking or unusual as the rest of it because jesus does something you don't hear very often in the last verse in verse 14 he judges their prayers you don't hear a lot of prayer judgment which i'm thankful for but what we know from the very start is that his goal is not to teach us on prayer his goal is to make a statement about what god values the heart that god values so look at verse 14 Jesus concludes it by saying, I tell you this, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What Jesus is teaching us is that God honors humility more than sacrifice. God honors humility more than sacrifice. Our tendency is to elevate sacrifice. The Olympics, like, are amazing. Not just because their abilities, but the sacrifices that Olympic athletes made in order to perform at that level, right? We elevate sports for that reason. We, I think about, I was talking to a doctor who's doing residency right now, and I'm amazed at the sacrifices he has to make in order to exit residency, right? You, You look at, police healthcare workers whatever the the realm is their sacrifices made and we recognize them we esteem people for the sacrifices they make god doesn't value sacrifice as high as we do the sacrifice you make for attendance for appearance is not his primary concern The more faithful you are in attendance, the more loudly you sing, the less visible your sins, we would assume they must be the truly devoted people. That's not God's view. God honors the humble more than those who sacrifice. And Jesus' conclusion in verse 14 tells us that very thing. Both men go home, only the tax collector is forgiven of his sins. He's justified. And that means that God honors humility. That's the thing he's looking for, which is profound. The creator of the universe, he doesn't need your best. He, 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 he wants you to depend on him. He doesn't need you at your best every day. He doesn't want you to run and strive and sweat to prove your devotion to him. He made everything perfectly. He holds it all together. He knows no sin And he's willing to overlook your imperfections and to forgive your sins. He doesn't need your sacrifices. He's got it all under control. He will only accept your worship and your sacrifice when given freely from a heart that depends on him. He honors and exalts the humble, not the charitable, not the religious, not just the obedient. He honors the humble. He honors those who recognize who they really are. That's the message of Scripture over and over. It's in your notes. Luke 1.52 He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. 1 Peter 5.5 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4.10 Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. It's the promise of Scripture over and over And over and over and over again. God exalts the humble. The problem is, many times, we don't listen. I don't listen. We don't listen. We somehow think it is better to hide our sin than to confess it, it is better to appear perfect than to acknowledge that we're forgiven sinners. It is better to excuse our sin than to admit having sin. We're mixed up in our heads about what God really honors. God doesn't want perfect people. He wants humble, dependent, forgiven people who plead for his mercy. Too often we act even like spoiled teenagers, right? Who who obey but do it grumbling and complaining along the way. That's not what he wants. God promises to exalt the dependent, humble man and woman. Verse 14 of Luke 18, it says that simple truth. The humble man is justified. He's declared righteous before God. And it's just amazing. It's, It's crazy because you think about this. What it means, the way to be righteous is to admit you're not righteous. The the way to be justified by God is to admit you have no hope of justification apart from him. Declaring, God, I'm doing good. All that does is create separation. Distance from God. Owning your failure, saying, God, I I stink. I'm blowing it. I I don't know what to do other than to cry out to you for help. What does that do? It brings mercy from God. It brings compassion. Compassion. From God, It brings growth and acceptance from God. It is an amazing truth that God loves the humble. He exalts the humble. He lifts them up. He delights in people who depend on Him. That is, as I'm looking towards the future of our church, what I'm praying our church is filled with. We don't need perfect people. We don't need people who are just outwardly faithful and obedient and who do everything right. Our church will be way healthier with forgiven people, with people who acknowledge and admit their sins and their faults and their failings and throw themselves continually upon God's throne of mercy and grace. We need humble, dependent believers who will have an outsized witness in our valley. That's the only way that God is going to grow and honor our church. We don't need visually perfect people. We can have pierced, tatted, whatever, elderly, soccer moms, probably not all at once, but all of those things. We don't need perfect people. We don't need perfect families. Your family doesn't have to be perfect. Your kids aren't perfect. no, No one is. We need to acknowledge our struggles, our tears, our crazy uncles, our bad decisions, and to recognize all of us equally. Every man and woman is dependent entirely on God's mercy. And whether we continue in this size of the church, which is awesome, or we grow, which is terrifying, I am confident in this one thing. God honors humility. God will grow us as we depend on Him. He'll grow us in depth before him he will make us ready for heaven i I am praying for us to be this dependent obedient humble church i want to say that i want us to be known for our humility but those are so at odds with each other i don't know how that works but god honors humility and he is opposed to the proud a self-righteous church is a dying church do you understand that The the surest way to die personally, spiritually, is to be self-righteous. It's just as true for a church. A self-righteous person is self-deceived. There is no way that you are ever able to maintain and generate your own righteousness. God does it all. He delights in our dependence. He delights and honors in our humility before Him. And Jesus says a chapter earlier in Luke. I just put it in your notes so you'd see it. The right response of God's children is humble service. Luke chapter 17 verse 10 in your notes. You also, when you've done all that you commanded, you're going to say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That's the heart of someone forgiven. You, you don't do it to earn favor. You just say like, this is my duty. I just want to honor him in light of all that he's done for me. That's the heart of a child of God. And my prayer today through all of this is that you have seen and identified ways in which you might need to repent of your heart attitude. Because the, the greatest danger of this whole sermon, the, the, the thing I'm most terrified about for every person here, is that you would hear this and think, man, thank God I'm not like that Pharisee. Because do you get the irony of that statement? Thank God I'm not like him. You hear God's word and think, well, praise God I'm not like that. That is what the Pharisee said. Thank God I'm not like that. Don't leave today feeling that way. Recognize, identify ways in which you need to depend more on God. The Lord is pleading with you to see self-righteousness in your life, to confess it, to repent, to exchange all that you are for all that he is. Our natural bent is to judge people, to think of ourselves superior to them. Because you showed up at church before them, whenever that was. You drove faster or slower than them. You dressed better than them. You or in different than them in some way that you think is pleasing and good and right we are self-satisfied too easily god's plea plea of his word the plea of christ the plea of the spirit here is to start depending on god to confess that you are utterly unworthy of his mercy and to call out and plead with him for forgiveness The start of dependence is confessing when you're not dependent and when you have to change. Um, One of the best examples of this is Paul, who was a Pharisee, literally. (laughs) We're just metaphorically, he was literally. Philippians chapter three, he describes what that change was like, what it was to repent for him. Philippians chapter three, verse seven through nine. Whatever gain I had, the righteousness I'm hoping is true in every person here let's pray Father we come to you humbly this morning pleading for your mercy recognizing the natural gravity of our hearts towards self-righteousness independence from you and a desire to self-justify and judge others and supplant you on the throne Lord you alone are worthy of praise, and you alone is our hope. So Lord, we confess our foolish, deathly independence, the tendency of our own souls to walk away from the great power of the cross and try to do things in our power, our foolish, paltry attempts as little people to do great things when you are the only true and great one Lord our failing ways to earn your favor when your favor comes purely and exclusively through Jesus Christ or we want to do a lot for you but we don't want to do it in a way that brings dishonor or reproach to your name We want to have, Lord, a testimony as a church, but that will never be because of who we are and what we've done. It will always and forever be because of the mercy we know through Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would forgive our hearts of pride and arrogance, of internal apostasy. Lord, that we would be dependent entirely On you and your son Jesus Christ. Confessing our sins. Never failing to admit them. But owning our own personal needs for Jesus Christ. His death on the cross and his resurrection. Defeating our death and our sins. The power of our sins. Lord we are so thankful for the mercy available to us through Jesus Christ. And Lord I pray that every person here would know personally that mercy. That our church would be known for not perfect people, but forgiven sinners who love you and are just in awe of your grace in their lives each day. Lord, from that, transform us. Make us look different than the world around us, not for our greatness or our pleasure, but so that you would be known and exalted and glorified and that more would come to know you. That's our plea today, Lord. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot.